uh, in a lot of ways, think about this this week, that our lives uh, in, in so many ways are seeking to find like the proper tension between a lot of different things. Uh, I, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, may, maybe one of the most obvious ways in which this happens is, is between like work and rest. We have lots of things to do and busyness and, and things uh, that are in front of us, obligations. We want to do them. As, as believers, we seek to do our work unto the Lord and honor him with what we're doing. And so we want to work hard and do it well. But then scripture tells us to rest and to rest in the Lord and to take time and to stop and to uh, be still before him. But it's hard to find that right balance. It's two things that are kind of pulling us, which feels like in opposite directions at different times, working and resting. Or um, I think of it like with my children. I want to teach them to be responsible and respectful and to work hard. Uh, I want to teach them to earn the value of money, uh, to not just think they get everything they want, but at the same time as their dad, I want to give them good gifts. And I want to say when they go, hey, can we get this? Yes, let's get it. And then there's times where it's like, no, we can't do that. And and always feeling that tension of wanting to love them well, but also teach them responsibility. And so sometimes you're in the middle of that, of trying to gauge what's the center of that tension. Where do I live right in the middle of that? And the same is true in our faith and what we believe and the way that we operate, not just in those ways, but I mean great theological truths. Uh, We say this every week. And we're going to talk about it this morning. We're saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done for us. You are saved by grace alone and what Jesus has done. But then the Bible tells us as you come to a saving relationship, your life will change and you will start to work and do things out of that. And so it becomes very tricky in this. We're not saved by our works, but works are evidence that we're saved. And there's this tension there. If there's nothing in your life that looks like you're following Jesus, maybe you don't know Jesus. And so there's that tension that, yes, it's grace alone. And yes, it's Christ alone. But when you understand who he is and what he's done, it's going to change you. And so we live in that tension. But today we're going to talk about one that we see really in what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 9 and then now in Romans chapter 10. And so Romans 9, we spent so much time talking about God's sovereignty and how he is in control and he is working. But then we get to Romans chapter 10. It's talking about things that we're called to go and do and proclaim and make much of him. And it gives us this kind of tension and it's good because it pulls us into the proper tension of how we live in the middle of that. Trusting that God is sovereign, but also seeing our responsibility and what God has called us to. And so uh, when we started in Romans chapter nine, a few weeks ago, I talked about how um, I used the illustration of a skyscraper. If you've ever seen a skyscraper and they build these great, big, huge buildings and the foundation that they put, right? That if a skyscraper is 50 stories tall, it's got to go four or five or six stories down into the ground. And so if you've ever seen when they build one of those buildings, they go way down into the ground with concrete and rebar and steel and all these reinforcements to be able to hold that building up. And so what we've been doing in Romans chapter 9 in a lot of ways is kind of examining the underground foundation. How God's working behind the scenes and what he's doing and his sovereignty and the way he's pulling those things together. And today it's kind of like we're coming back up out of that. And now how do we live in light of this foundational truth? And so uh, the truth is a lot of times as we go in the way we live, we don't really think about those things. Like I used to work in a building in Houston, Texas, that was about 50 stories. And you'd go in every day and you'd pull in the parking garage and I'd walk in and I'd go up 
And I never thought about the foundation. You just go about your business and this is what you're doing and it's going to stand and this building will be here. But you don't really think about the foundation that's holding it up. And so some, in some ways, as we're talking about what Paul's pulling us to and he's kind of pulling us back into this tension, it kind of helps establish that we're not just going to dwell on that, although that's holding everything up, the foundational truths. And so the way I want us uh, to think about this this morning, or at least part of this, is, is when we overemphasize one part, we kind of get out of the center of that tension. I had a professor in seminary, and I, I say this regularly. It made a profound effect on me. He used to say, we always want to live in the center of the biblical tension. That there's things that the Bible calls us to that are not contradictory, but they seem to pull us in different directions a little bit. And so we spent so much time talking about God's sovereignty and how he is in control and he chooses and he predestines and election and all these things. But the truth is, if, if we camp on just God's sovereignty and we emphasize just that to the detriment of some of the other things that scripture tells us, we can get off into a place that, that's not good. Uh, we can end up with an unwarranted, unbiblical apathy. Oh, well, God's in control. And so I don't have to do anything. He's got this and he's in control and I'll rest in his sovereignty. But then what ends up happening is we've gotten way over to one side and we're forgetting some clear things that scripture calls us to. And so what we're looking at today in chapter 10, I feel like Paul kind of helps pull us back to the center of that tension. He helps get us back into a healthy place. And so what we're going to see is, yes, God is sovereign, but he chooses to work through his people. And those are not contradictory. He does both and he holds them both perfectly together. But that helps bring us back. And so what I want to do for just a second, let's recap just a minute what Paul has said in chapter nine. We spent four weeks going through chapter nine. And so just real briefly, big picture. First thing Paul talks about at the beginning of chapter nine is he's talking about why Israelites, the Jews, are not uh, coming to faith in great numbers to Jesus. A bunch of them have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so he kind of poses this question, why is that the case? They should, of all people, have the clearest picture of who the Messiah should be. And so why are they missing that? And he asks the question, have God's promises failed because so many are not coming to faith, are not trusting in Jesus at this moment? And he says, no, God's promises have not failed. God is sovereign and he chooses, he doesn't lose any, and not all of Israel is Israel. He is sovereignly in control of all of this. And just because they were ethnic Israel, just because they were in the line of Abraham, doesn't mean they had a saving relationship with Jesus. And he says, God is completely in control in that, and he's sovereign. And then out of that comes a couple of objections. The first being, well, how is that fair? How is it fair for God to choose some and not others, and how does he do that? And the answer to that is that God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he's perfectly just to do so. Paul's already well established this in Romans that none of us deserve God's mercy. None of us deserve his grace. We've all rebelled against him. We've all sinned. But in him choosing to have mercy on any just shows that God is a merciful God. And so he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion, which immediately brings another objection that Paul's anticipating. Well, if that's true, isn't it unfair of God to hold us accountable? To which he says, no, God has every right over his creation. It's his. He has every right over it. And we don't deserve his mercy. He'd be perfectly just to reject all of us, but he doesn't. 
And he brings us into a relationship by his mercy. He has compassion and he does so. And he's perfectly just to do so. And so all of this kind of brings us back to this idea here that we're going to talk about again this morning. It reminds us that the only way to come to him is by faith alone. Clinging to his grace and his mercy and who God is and trusting him in everything. And so that's part of uh, kind of the subtext of everything Paul's been saying. The Israelites were trusting not in God alone and what he's doing, but in their ethnicity and in their doing and in their keeping the law and all these other things. And he's going, it doesn't work that way. You have to be trusting in God alone and what he is doing. And so these are great big weighty ideas, great big foundational truths that we've been wrestling with. So now we kind of come out, well, how do we live in light of that? Now, what do we do? And the answer is we reject the notion that any of it is due to us and we cling to the grace of God. And he's going to say that again. And he's been saying that that's kind of the whole of the thesis of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation. The gospel being the good news of what God has done for us. And so again, he's going to come back to this. And so the way I want us to look at chapter 10 verses five through 17 is simply this. He's going to come back to this idea of what is saving faith and he's going to spell it out. And so I want us to start there. What is it? Secondly, who is it for? Right. This message, this good news, the gospel, who is it for? And that's going to help pull us back into the center of this tension. And then lastly, I want us to consider what do we do with this? Right. So what is it? Who is it for and what do we do with it? So let's just start with what is saving faith, what he says here. So pick up in verse five. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. And so I wanted to stop there for just a second, what he's doing here. He's making a comparison. And if you look closely, you see it, right? Verse five, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, right? That seeking to be righteous by what you do and what you, uh, how you are obeying and the things that are in front of you. And then he actually quotes what he's saying there is actually a quote from, from uh, Leviticus, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. And so he's talking about that. But then verse six, he makes a comparison. But the righteousness based on faith says, and so he's making a a differentiation between seeking righteousness by the law and seeking righteousness by faith, right? And so he he then quotes from Deuteronomy 30 to kind of make his point there. But, But I think the point of what he's making is he's saying there's two ways to righteousness, one being perfect obedience, which Paul has already well said in Romans that none of us has done. Right? That's the whole first two chapters, three chapters. He's just building that case that no one is righteous. No, not, not one. No one will be justified by works of the law. And that's true for all of us. And he's already said that. And so here he's talking about two ways to righteousness. That will not work, but it's by faith. And so again, he's making that comparison. It's not this, but it's this. And I think he comes back and what he's saying there when we get down to Verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And he's saying, just as the Israelites had the law right in front of them. So you too now have the gospel right in front of you and it's being proclaimed to you. And this is the only way you'll be saved. 
It's only by faith in what God has done. It will never be by your works. And he's making that comparison there. And so when we start to think about that, what saving faith is, he said this over and over. It's by faith and not by works. Right? We've, we've talked about this. Uh, the way we said it when we were in, in Romans chapter 3, if you were with us way back, is it's transferring your trust from what you do to what Jesus has done. And again, Paul's making that point. He's saying the same thing. And we've been saying that over and over. I say this all the time. If you're here, you're like, yes. Hopefully, hopefully you're here and you go, yes, I know this. You say this frequently. I've heard this. Say by faith. It's not works. We keep coming back to that. But I, I want to just pause on that for just a second and I want to tell you why. It's so clear. We need to be so clear when we say what is saving faith. And sometimes it's helpful to say what it's not. He's going to tell us what it is in just a second very clearly, but sometimes it's helpful to say what it's not. It's not your works. It's not what you earn. It's not any of that. And the reason that I harp on that and I come back to that over and over is one scripture does. Paul does. does it a lot here in Romans. But it's also experientially what I see all the time. I regular, I regularly meet people that ask, what do you do? Right? I mean, you meet people, normal conversation. You mention, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. And I would say 80% of the time, what I then get is, oh, well, I went on a mission trip when I was in high school. My uncle's a pastor. Uh, I go volunteer at the Meals by Grace thing. Or I do, and they start to give me a resume. Now, I'm not judging someone who says that to me. Sometimes it's just making small talk, and they go, well, this is where I can connect, and I appreciate that. I'm not, not making light of that. But what they immediately do is tell you, here's my works. Here's what I've done. And I can't help but when I hear that over and over again, that we're not thinking, at least to some degree, that I'm good with God by what I do. And that's so often the default. I hear that over and over. Recently, in, in recent years, it, it's a little different. I hear it a little differently. Uh, it depends on the person. Probably depends on the context too. But sometimes I hear things like, oh, well, I'm a spiritual person. You go, okay, what does that mean? Well, I believe. I believe that there's something more out there. And you go, okay, great. <laughs> Or, or sometimes people will say, well, I, I believe in God in my own way. Or I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That's like growing greatly in our culture. And it's kind of like this vague, uh, quasi-mystical belief. I have belief in belief. I believe in some things. And so I say that to say that is not saving faith. Saving faith is not that you went on a mission trip when you were in high school. Saving faith is not that your uncle was a pastor. Saving faith is not that I kind of believe that maybe there's a God out there in some ways. And what often happens when we do that and we even embrace that kind of thinking, yes, God's out there and I'm sure he's watching out for me, or I'm spiritual but not religious. What we're really saying is I'm kind of my own God. I decide. I don't have anything that I attest to, but I've just decided that there's some things I believe and that's what I believe and I hold to which your will can't be crossed when you do that and it's just all you and what you think. Suddenly your God looks just like you. But the point is, that's not saving faith. That's not what Paul says here. It's not what scripture says. It's not what it looks like. 
And so he tells us here very clearly what saving faith is and what it looks like. So look at what he says in verse 9 and verse 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And I want you just to think about that for just a second. What he says saving faith is, is not a vague spirituality. Saving faith is not a trying to earn your worth before God. Saving faith is not doing some things and hoping your good works outweigh your bad works. But that's our heart's default because we want to see our salvation based on what we do rather than admitting that we need someone to do it for us. But what Paul says is that this is what saving faith looks like. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so the first thing he says, the language he's using there, is you start with Jesus is God. That the God of the universe has come down and he's come into creation and he's walked among us. That Jesus is not just a man, but that he is God incarnate. That he has put on flesh and he has come into his creation. And he says it starts there. If you confess that Jesus is God, that he is Lord. But then the second thing right behind that, he says, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so it's not just that Jesus is God, but that Jesus has come and he's lived this life perfectly and that he dies this death that he did not deserve as he lays his life down. And then he's gloriously resurrected again, that God has accepted what Jesus has done on our behalf. And what it is, is that conception, it kind of shortens it here, what Paul always says about life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But saying, confessing that he's been raised from the dead kind of assumes that he lived and that he actually died and now he's been raised again. And so Paul says that this is what saving faith looks like. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is God and that he has lived the life that you haven't lived and he's died the death that you deserve. And God has accepted it in, in gloriously raising him from the dead. And we can now have this relationship with God through what Jesus has done. And so it's the same thing that Paul has said over and over and over again. That we put our trust in him, not in ourselves. And he says, you confess that. You believe that. Or, or if you look at verse 10, the way he says it, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses it's saved, right? Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. That's the way he says it. That doesn't mean that those works of saying certain words or having a certain uh, integrity of belief saves you. He's saying it's your whole being, that you're putting your trust in Jesus, right? I want to be careful when we say that because it's like, well, you've got to confess with your mouth and you have to say some certain things. If we get into that, what we're then saying is it's back to your works. You had to say it in a certain way. These basics of what the gospel is, you're believing, you're confessing, right? That's what baptism we do. We stand up and we we confess that we're a believer and we be baptized. We're confessing as we tell others, as we go and make disciples. But we're believing with the entirety of our being. It's not just you, you can recite some doctrinal points, but you actually believe them. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart and you will be saved. And that's what he says saving faith is. And so I want us just to think about that for just a second. Putting putting our trust not in ourselves but in Jesus and what he's done. Now what do we do with that? 
If that's what saving faith is, how do we respond to that? Who is it for? And I, and I want to connect back to where we were in, in Romans chapter 9. Because what we said in Romans chapter 9 is that God doesn't lose any. That he chooses, that he calls them, that he brings them in. And he doesn't lose any. He's completely sovereign. And so we could say, well, that message is for the elect. It's for those he's going to call. But look at what Paul says here. Look at what he says as he tells us this. This is saving faith. And then he says in verse 11, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I want to just stop there for just a second. Here we've been talking so much about God's sovereignty, but then we get to here and Paul says, you go and you proclaim this message and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is where I go back to my analogy of the skyscraper. We've been looking at the foundation and the foundation tells us that God is completely sovereign and he's in control even of salvation. But then we come out of that and we go, well, how do we now live? And the answer is that God is sovereign He is sovereignly in control of all things, but yet he uses uh, the means of working through people. He calls us to go proclaim the good news of what he's doing. He works through people. He works through means in his sovereignty. And we don't know who the elect is. We're not privy to that information. We understand how the foundation works, but we're not supposed to be operating. We don't know how that works out. And so what Paul says at the beginning of chapter nine, before he goes into all this, is I have great anguish over my kinsmen that are not believing. He's he's crying out for them that he wants them to know who Jesus is. He gets to chapter 10 in verse one and he says, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He just told you that not all of Israel is Israel, that God is going to do what he's going to do, that he is sovereign over all of it. But my heart's desire is that they would be saved. And so when you put that together, that yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is going to have mercy on whom he's going to have mercy. But we don't know who that is or how God chooses. And so when we come back to this message, well, who is it for? And the answer is, from our vantage point, it's for everyone. You go and you tell and you proclaim and you don't know. I don't know who's going to be called. I don't know whose eyes are going to be open to see the glory of God. But what Paul says is that anyone who calls will be saved. And so as far as we're concerned and being in the center of that tension that, yes, God is sovereign, but yet God tells us to go. To live in the middle of that is I'm going to trust him that he's doing that work and I'm going to trust that he uses the means of his people to proclaim his name and I'm going to tell that to anyone and everyone. And I can say with integrity that this message is for everyone. From my vantage point and what I can see, I'm going to go and proclaim it to all. And so when we say, well, who is this for? We can say it's for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. They will be saved. And it brings us out of uh, those bad places we can get to if we overemphasize one over the other. There's this charge against holding uh, to a theology that says God is sovereign over salvation. Well, that'll just lead you to not do anything. That'll lead you to 
hyper-Calvinism, which is I'm going to sit on my hands and I'm not going to worry about anything and God will take care of it. Well, if you do that, you're disobedient to what God tells you to do. You're not living in the center of the tension of what he calls us to because we don't know. That's not information that we have. We're just supposed to be trusting him in everything, in humility, in humility, knowing that we can never do it, trusting him and following him wherever that is. And so that leads me to the last part. Well, how do we respond? Well, he tells you. Verse 14 and following. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the center of the tension is God is sovereign, but yet he chooses to work through his people. And we get to be part of that. And so he says, so go. How will they know if they haven't heard? So go and proclaim the good news of what he's done. And so we start to think about, well, what is our part? What do we, how do we respond in this? We remember that in God's sovereignty, he's choosing, and he's working, but yet he works through his people. And so I want us just to think here at the end, just for a minute, about what that does to us if we hold these things in the proper tension. What is the outcome of that? If we actually are believing in God's sovereignty and that he's in control, but yet he works through the means of his people and we're called to go. So how do we hold those two together? And the the first thing I would say is that there is no room if we're in the middle of that tension for apathy. God works through the means of his people. And he tells us that he is sovereign, but he chooses to work through the means of his people. And so the idea of we'll just sit on our hands and we won't do anything is embracing a lie. Well, God's sovereign. And so it's okay. That's true. You know, you know, the most uh, deceitful lies are like 99% true. And then there's just a little part that's wrong. And that's what happens. Well, God's sovereign. Yes, he's in control. Yes. You don't have to do anything. Wait a second. (laughs) He doesn't tell us that. He says he's going to work through the means of his people. He's calling us to be part of what he's doing. And so, yes, God is sovereign in this, but we get to be part of it. And so there's no place for apathy. Scriptures tell us over and over. I mean, it's right here. Verse 14. When he says, how will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe if they haven't heard? And if they don't go and they don't say. God is working through those means. But not only that, we see over and over when we're saved and we're called into God's family and we've received his mercy, we're then told that we're now his people and he saved us and he's brought us into this thing. He's brought us from death to life. We now become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's Titus 3, the way it says it. But then the very next thing it says there is we now get to devote ourselves to good works to show what he's like. It's never just he calls you for this thing and now you're in and that's it. And you just kind of coast off into the sunset because God's sovereign. And you got you get to now go proclaim who he is. God chooses to use us as part of that. First Peter two, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. 
God saves us and he restores us to him. He gives us a future and a hope. He makes us new. He says, we're going to have the fullness of this coming. But in the meantime, you get to go and proclaim the good news of who he is. And God works through the means of his people. And so we get to be part of that. And so there's no room for apathy in that. But the second thing I would say is when we get this and we hold that tension that God is sovereign, but yet he works through his people is that it makes us bold, recognizing that no one is beyond God's reach. That God is at work and he's in work in all these different ways. I heard it said years ago and it stuck with me. I think I'll give credit where it's due. I believe it was Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Dallas that's president of Acts 29, but talking about God's sovereignty but yet he chooses to work through us. And he said, when, when God lays someone on my heart to pray for, all of a sudden I'm just overwhelmed that I need to pray for this person. Friend or neighbor or someone that you're, it's in your life. And he said, I'm just overwhelmed that I need to pray for him. He said, I've started to see in my life that it's like God tapping me on the shoulder and saying, I'm about to do something really great and I want you to be part of it. That he wants to use us and what he's doing is drawing people to himself. And that we get to be part of that. And so when we start to think that way, that God is at work and he's in these things, he is the one that's going to do that work. And we get to be part of what he's doing. That it should lead us to have a great boldness. He is at work here and nothing can uh, frustrate his, his uh, purposes. And I can trust him in that. And so I can begin to make those steps. And so we should be bold knowing that no one is beyond God's reach. But then the third thing, when we put all this together, is that successful evangelism, right? We've talked about evangelism being good newsing, telling the good news of what God has done. Successful evangelism is the fact that you open your mouth and you share the word. You share the name of Jesus. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's the means in which God works. But God is sovereign. And so you open your mouth and you share it knowing that he's the one that's going to draw people to himself. And so what that means is you can't save anyone. This is my pet peeve. I'm going to show my my theological stripes here. When someone says they're a soul winner, I've never won a single soul in my life, and I never will, because I can't do it. I've been fortunate to be right there up close when God opens someone's eyes and shows them Jesus. And I get to see it and I get to be there and celebrate with the person, but I didn't do it. God does that. That is his work. He is the one that does it. And so our part is to be faithful, to speak the truth and God will do that work. And so there's a wonderful thing when you start to think about that. When it's The pressure's off. You can't do it. You can't argue someone into faith. That doesn't mean, again, this is the tension, doesn't mean you do everything in your ability to explain and be kind and gracious and walk along with people, but you know that that work is God's doing. And so when we understand that, it means that we just get to be part. And so this very uh, imperfect example, but I was thinking about, anybody remember when Ed McMahon would go to the door with the giant check, right? I'm dating myself. If you're older than me, you probably remember, right? He would go to the door and they'd give somebody like a million dollars and they'd have the cameras and they'd not, right? It's kind of like you're surrounded by people that have won, that 
that need the check and you just got to go take it to them. Here, I want you to have this. And God's going to do it and he's already done it and he's given it to them. Wouldn't you like to be the person to hand them the check? I know it's a silly example, but I would. And so when I walk around my neighborhood and I pray and I think about the people who are there, who God are you calling? Let me be part of it. I want to see it up close. I want to see your glory as you bring people to yourself. I know it's not me and I know I can't do it, but I sure would like to be part of it. And so when we see that and we hold those in that right tension, we know that successful evangelism, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, is naming the name of Jesus and calling people to repentance. And God's going to do that work. And he allows us to be part. And so that leads me to the last part. We'll end with this. When we see those two and we're holding them in tension, we're going to see that our efforts in all these ways to, to want to share the good news of Jesus, we're going to start to see how important prayer is. I can't change anyone's heart. I can't do it. It's not possible, but God can do it. And he tells us to talk to him, to come to him, to bring before him, to ask him. And I don't know exactly how my prayers work with God's sovereignty. I think he's shaping me. That would be my short answer. Because I don't think I'm changing him. I think he's changing me in that. But I do know that it's going to, as I see God's sovereignty and I hold those two things together, it's going to push me to be ever present in prayer. Seeking him. God, I can't do this. I know I can't do Only you can do this. Would you save this person? Would you give me opportunities to be part of what you're doing? And it's going to lead us to be ever more prayerful in this posture, right? That's, that's what Paul's doing in, in 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And our prayers are going to be bold because we know God is sovereign and we know he's good. And we know these work and all these things. And so we need to live in the center of that tension, trusting that God is sovereign and that he is good and that he chooses to use us in that. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you have done for us what we can never do for ourselves. We thank you. We pray that we'd be ever mindful of that fact. I pray that as we go out of this place, that we would be reminded that you are completely sovereign in every way but yet you choose to use us to be part of your plans. And so we thank you, even though you don't need us, that you allow us to be part, that you choose to, for us to be part, that you love us enough to bring us into your plans. And so I pray that you would help to give us eyes to see for the ways that you are working and the ways that you want to use us in that. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.